you know, it was, uh, it was quite a week for me during Mission Focus. Uh, as I mentioned, I was ordained, but just a few days before that, I turned 50, uh, believe it or not. I know I don't look a day over 49, maybe two and a half weeks over 49, but, uh, you know, it is an honor to be here with you guys and to preach. Um, you know, uh, so here comes a shameless plug. I mean, it is what it is. I'll just call it out. I'll just address it straight up. Um, Whole Heart, which is a fellowship that, that I have the privilege of, of teaching, uh, you know, each Sunday. We have been going through a series over the past few months on lessons from Jesus' questions. And it's been a good time in the Word. Uh, at 1045 in the Annex West, if you don't have a fellowship, uh, we'd be honored to have you. We do have coffee and treats. Okay, done with the shameless plug. Um, but with that being said, again, if you do not have a fellowship. Uh, but in that study, we came across a passage that was recorded in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, about Jesus asking the disciples who he was, right? And he said, who do men say that I am? So it's a question of Jesus. And then he says, whom do you say that I am, or you say that I am? And it was a, it was a pretty special moment for me when I was preparing that message for, for those of you who've had the opportunity to prepare messages week after week and have that responsibility, there are certain messages that, that jump out at you. And um, those, the, that message was one that really jumped out. And um, so, you know, it is, it's, it's so, so when I did the message, Decker Perkins, who decided not even to come today, uh, he's watching online, said that it was a really cool message that the entire church needed to hear, and it was shortly thereafter that Sam asked me to preach, and so I couldn't ignore that. I couldn't. Now, you're not going to get the exact same message. If you want to, you can go back and listen to that message, but it is a spin-off of that encounter, uh, that encounter. So with that, I'd actually ask the, the ushers to come forward and, and provide any, does anybody need handouts we'll, before we get going? Just raise up your hand, and uh, they'll, they'll take care of that. Just keep your hand up, and we're going to pray for our time in the Word. Lord, we do thank you for uh, the opportunity. Uh, I personally thank you for the opportunity to stand behind this pulpit on this stage uh, and preach to these people. It is uh, an absolute honor. And Lord, I just ask that the things that you've prepared in my heart, the things that you gave me to speak, Lord, would be communicated effectively, that the Holy Spirit would even change the words if, they, if, you, if you see the need to, to land them well in the hearts of, of the folks that are, that are hearing this message. Lord, use your Spirit in a way that we cannot do in our flesh. Use your Spirit in the way to teach us supernaturally, not in our intellect. Lord, we trust you for it. We love you for it. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. So I, you know, I, uh, today, you know, you probably will see it on your, on your handout. We're going to be speaking about how to build a lasting church. Now, I love Kansas City. I'm born and raised here. I'm a Kansas City guy. If the Lord moves us somewhere else, it will be a hard day. We actually moved to Missoula, Montana to be part of a church plant uh, back in 1998. And uh, kind of like... Um, kind of like the Merritts went with, with the Renaults to help start the church in, uh, in Boston. We did that uh, out of Kansas City, and it was a hard day driving, you know, west on I-70 and maybe north. I don't remember exactly how we left. It was 
was a long time ago. I don't know if you remember, I'm 50 now, so I can claim memory loss. But I am very proud to call Kansas City home. I, I love it very much. And I love a good story about Kansas City history. So uh, this, this next picture on the slide, uh, you may or may not recognize this building. It's a picture of the Westminster Congregational Church. Now, it's a, uh, it was at 36th and Walnut, just four blocks of here, the four blocks north of here. Now, the Kansas City Times, May 23rd of 1904, proclaimed in an article its cornerstone laid and just three years later on june 17th 1907 they held an article about the dedication of the westminster church now according to the application of this building to the national registry of historic places it was constructed by a congregation of individuals who left the second presbyterian church in 1875 after a split due to a new pastor appointment still happened back then too right um so people decided to go and they were going to start this new church now uh, i'm not sure when the last time a church actually met in this building but you may recognize it as it was the home of unruh or it pronounced it's unruh but it's u-n-r-u-h furniture and solomon's porch met there for for a while but but in march 17th just of 2021 so not even a full year ago Walt, uh, there was a, they, they had an article in the, in the Star, and it said, Walt Disney used to stand at the corner of 36th and Walnut Streets and admire how much this church looked like a castle. Walt Disney admiring a church looking like a castle. I think that's pretty interesting. He, Walt was, Uncle Walt was always taken by architecture, said his nephew, Charles Elias Disney, and when he would talk about art, architecture in later years, he still talked about that church. Now, Charles Elias, the oldest living, surviving Disney, stood near that same spot on, the, on Tuesday evening back in March of 2021, and his brother, Daniel Disney, was beside him as they craned their necks and pointed to different sections of the crumbling limestone facade. Built in 1904, the Westminster Congregation, Congregational Church at 3600 Walnut Street served its congregation for more than 100 years as countless worshipers, including the Disney family, attended services in that church a centerpiece of Kansas City's Hanover uh, Place neighborhood. Charles Elias Disney recalled with a chuckle that while Walt, who moved to Kansas City with his family in 1910 at the age of nine, liked to sit in the balcony, Walt's parents liked to sit close to the front, as, as close as they could to the front to make sure they didn't miss anything. As a child, Charles Elias Disney would sit in the sanctuary and search for the peak of the 65-foot ceiling as natural light streamed through the golden stained glass windows, and it made him think of heaven. But when Disney, now 80, gazed in the same direction Tuesday, this again in March of 2021, all that remained was sky, because on February 13th, a structural failure caused the sanctuary's roof to collapse on itself. The structure was deemed a dangerous building by the city's neighborhoods and housing services on February 19th, and an emergency order to, demoli to, to demolish was issued. This is what the lot looks like now. Well, there's snow on it now, but you get the point. This is what the lot looks like. The church is just a memory, relegated to stories and online papers, uh, documents, uh, do, uh, you know, portraying its past, and, and even pictures that substantiate its, its existence. But if you didn't know, you wouldn't know. Just six years after that church was built, however, this church building was built. Just six years. 
Will this structure still be here years from now? I don't know. I'm putting my money on Miller not destroying it, but, you know. <laughs> that other church hadn't had a church meeting in it for years. I don't even know what happened to the congregation. I didn't take time to research it. Will we, Christ Church in this place, still be around a few years from now, assuming the Lord tarries? He literally gave us a pattern, a plan for building and prevailing a church. And we're going to look at that today. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, the verse that we're going to focus on is there in your, uh, on your handout. But Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to pick it up in verse 16. Uh, we'll look at 15. And he saith unto him, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell will not prevail against this church. Now notice there is two kind of parts to this uh, verse in, in, or this uh, passage in verse 18. That Christ will build his church, right, upon the rock, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that's really going to con construct our outline today, so let's, let's dig a little, a little bit deeper. Now the first step we have to identify is the right rock, right? We could build on the wrong rock, we want to build on the right rock. So, <clears throat> excuse me, we need to define the rock. Now, I believe Jesus was being very specific when he said these words. What did he mean? Was it, was it Peter? Uh, there's a lot of folks that would argue that Peter is that rock because Peter has the name Pebble, but I don't, I don't think so. While Peter's name is tied to a rock, it's more like a pebble, pebble is your fill in the blank there, more than a solid rock formation. Uh, you know, I, I have seen, and we're going to talk about some construction, and I'm not sure building on pebbles is the way to go, right? I think it's building on a bigger rock than that. I think it's clear that Jesus is not overly tying the two types uh, the two concepts together as much as he's separating them. He's drawing a con contrast. Now, the history of the church, a lot of, uh, specifically the Catholics, will build this as uh, that, that the rock is, is Peter. I, again, I don't think that's the case. Now, I think Jesus is making a proclamation, a contrast between Peter and Peter's proclamation because he spends some time talking about it, as will we. Notice in verses 18 and 19, he says, And I say unto thee that thou art, or thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the, kingdom, uh, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on the earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on the earth shall be loose in heaven. So he actually uses definite articles talking about Peter, thou, thee, thou, and thou. Yet this one time in the middle, he says this. I think that's a contrast. I think it's simple English in contrast, right? So I don't think it's grammatically accurate to tie those concepts together, Peter and the rock, as much as it's grammatically accurate to separate 
or contrast those two parts. So if it's not Peter, who is it or what is it? What is Christ referring to? Let's peel back this onion a little bit, and we need to use a Bible study method regarding applications of Scripture to understand. Now, there's three applications of Scripture, inspirational or devotional, and we see that how, how it, we can take encouragement from virtually any passage in Scripture, right? And we can apply it to our life today inspirationally or devotionally. We can take encouragement from it. We can take edification from it. But we can't always take the, the true application or the doctrinal application. Now, this is the specific teaching of the Scripture that is for a specific audience. It's, it's within its context to that right audience. Now, it's the foundation, honestly, this doctrinal, this, this difference between devotional and do doctrinal application is an underpinning of our dispensational view of Scripture. It's honestly how we understand Scripture and, and, and to some degree deal with apparent conflicts in Scripture. If you don't have different applications and you don't have, understand context, you got the Bible con con you know, contradicting or conflicting itself. And then the third is the historical, like what, what was happening right then, who was talking to who, you know, where was it, the who, what, when, and how, you know, that sort of thing. And there's obviously a lot to glean from that as well when you're studying Scripture. Now, we don't have time to lay a lot more groundwork on the three applications of Scripture here this morning. But I would encourage you, there's ways for you to learn about it. Casually, you could listen to a postscript. I think it's episode 103. I, I went back and looked. I think that's the right. I'm, I'm at least close uh, where, where Brandon and uh, Brian Hedges discuss the different applications of Scripture. But actually, in LFBI, this very spring, there's two classes that talk about this concept. At, a, again, probably at a more uh, foundational level in our Foundations 3 class, what we used to call D, uh, D2. But Foundations 3, it's happening this, this spring. And also the class on hermeneutics, right? So you can get detail, more detailed uh, understanding of the three applications of Scripture. But you would, you would learn all about this concept, right? But just the other thing is, if you just stick around here for a while, you'll understand, you'll glean this concept. You will glean that there are times when someone is teaching the word where they're talking about an inspirational application. There's times when they're talking about a doctrinal application. So today we're actually gonna dive into to kind of both of these with respect to this context. So when we consider the devotional or inspirational application of this story of Christ's interaction specifically with Peter, the Lord being our rock is pretty straightforward, right? You can go to any Mardell Christian bookstore, at least I think you can, and find a picture of a beautiful mountain or maybe this lighthouse in, in uh, Minnesota on this wonderful rock and with this verse about you know, Jesus being our rock, right? You can, you can, I'm sure you can do that today. Well, not today, it's closed on Sundays. But tomorrow you could do that, right? But I'm gonna go through some, some concepts about the Lord being our rock fairly quickly, okay? Devotional concepts. Now you'll notice in, in your notes, I've got the, uh, the, 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 the designation and the reference, the verse is actually on the screen for you. But uh, first, 
is this concept that Christ as our rock is a place of preeminence, right? Which makes sense. Rocks are, you know, like mountains and this rock on the, on the slide, right? 1 Samuel 2, 2 says that there's none beside him nor anyone like him. He alone is God, right? He also creates a, a place of purpose as our rock. Psalm 40, this beautiful psalm. I think the only psalm ever sung by you too, but you check it out. But it's a beautiful psalm that has helped many people in times of trouble, right? I mean, just it's, it's been a rock, if you will, in people's life to go back and look at in times of trouble to see beyond their current state, to get some um, uh, purpose in their life. He says he will bring us up out of the mire and the pit and he will, and, he, and look at this, he sets us on him, on the rock. It's beautiful. It allows us to get kind of unstuck, get out of our rut, move forward, and look at that, establish our goings. What's going to happen next, right? It's beautiful, inspirational application. Notice we're getting most of these from the Old Testament. It, similarly, in Psalm 61, Psalm 61, it's a place of perspective. No matter where I am, even the ends of the earth, he hears us or he hears me and he will draw us back to him. It's a beautiful rock illustration. Back to the place that is higher than I. I mean, there's nothing quite like a mountain vacation. I just saw some, some friends on Facebook went out to the mountains and, oh, it's beautiful. There's nothing quite like going to a place that's higher, giving us a different view, a different perspective than what we have, you know, normally. We also see he also provides for us in this rock. Notice in Psalm 81, Israel has missed out. God should have fed them with the finest of the wheat and the honey out of the rock, satisfying them in a place of provision, but they missed out because he, as our rock, is a place of provision. Right? Beautiful, beautiful illustrations. And then the last one that we'll see in, in, um, in the next slide is in 2 Samuel, we see a beautiful picture of protection. The Lord is our rock, right? A fortress, a deliverer, a pavilion, and a place of hiding, according to Psalm 27. And it's somewhat ironic, and I think it's, it's, it's beautiful uh, literature, if you will. It's a beautiful uh, picture that he hides us by lifting us up and putting us in him, right? I mean, I think that's, that's, that's beautiful. Now, these are wonderful devotional applications, and I am not going to minimize them at all. These are sometimes the things that get people through the lowest valleys of their life. Purpose, perspective, provision, protection, his preeminence. Beautiful, beautiful spiritual pictures. The Lord surely is our rock, and we need to build on him. There is no doubt about it. But when we shift from the inspirational or devotional application and we shift to the doctrinal implications of the passage, we see that Jesus is not just saying, I will build my church upon me. Otherwise, he would have said that. <laughs> he didn't say that. He said, upon this rock. And I believe that he's pointing to the interaction that just happened. Who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Upon this rock will I build my church. I would argue that that's what's happened at 40th and Walnut. Proclamation, proclamation, proclamation of each and every individual in this place and those who have not 
hopefully you will make that proclamation, as Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's how he will multiply and build, build and multiply his church. It's not going to be through wonderful music, although the music is wonderful here. It's not going to be through laser light shows, although I think maybe we could do a laser light show one time. I don't know. What do you think? It's not going to be through the best acoustical room. It's not going to be through, through fancy preachers with slick back hair. See, I can say that. With slick back hair. It's not going to be that. It's going to be through the preaching of the word and the individual decisions of who Christ is. That's how the church is built. And every time we do that, we put another brick, another stone, another part in the church. So even, see, even before these events, in Matthew, um, in, in chapter 16, earlier in that, in Mark 8 and, and Luke 9, before they even occur, Jesus had already been identified as the light, the word, the Lamb of God in John chapter 1. Even the Samaritan woman at the well proclaims that he's the Messiah. But here, Peter's testimony of Christ, of Jesus as the Christ, is a game changer. It's a seminal moment in the ministry. I would argue it's, it's before and after this moment. Right after we hear this, Jesus challenges his disciples to count the cost of discipleship. I mean, they've been his disciples for a long time. Why now is he telling him to do that? They even shortly thereafter go to the Mount of Transfiguration where his glory shines, where God tells, him, tells them, this is my beloved son, hear ye him, right? Before all of that can happen, there has to be a proclamation of who Christ is. Before the power can come, before the, the, the true cost of discipleship, before the fruit in the ministry can come, there has to be a proclamation. Without, you're just working in the flesh. Let's look at four aspects of this relationship, this proclamation relationship that separates it from a simple mechanical interaction. Because somebody could stand right here in front of me and proclaim the words but not mean it. Okay? Notice in Matthew 7, 22 and 23, it's, it's actually very clear. This verse is, it, it's, it's not about working in his name. Okay? It's not about doing. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not done things? And in thy name have we ca have, uh, cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works? Like, like, we built beautiful buildings in your name, Lord. And then I will profess unto them in, in arguably some of the most serious words that Jesus ever, ever speaks. I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Wow. Wow. Now, I'm not challenging you today specifically to say you're working iniquity if you're doing things in the flesh. That's not my point, but you're missing out. That isn't the point. Don't show up here and do things in your flesh because of who he is. Show up and do things here because of your relationship in who he is. Your savior. 
There are people who are literally living a religious lifestyle. I would argue there's some here. I don't know that. Just statistically, there are probably some here. They even honor Jesus by indicating his lordship. They talk the talk. They walk the walk. They're careful what to say, what not to say, when to say it. They sound real spiritual. But the problem is they've never had that personal relationship. They've never truly proclaimed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Their relationship is based on the efforts, the work that they've done, rather than the relationship itself, not on the person of Christ. I, I love my wife. Now, I love her not because she does things to take care of me, right? I mean, I have, I'm wearing matching socks today, <laughs> praise the Lord. Thank you, honey. I don't even know. Thank you. I'm, I'm pretty sure this, the, these socks you matched. Because if, if Manning did it, he's not in here. If Manning did it, they wouldn't match. Um, the clean dishes, the, the things that she does around the house to, to make a conducive environment for me to work. I work from home, to live, to minister. I mean, that, those are wonderful things. But I don't love her because of that. See, the shared experiences that we have, the mutual respect that we have for one another, the commitment between us that started years ago, 26 and change, right? 26 and a half years ago. It's the basis of that. That's the basis of the relationship. Now, she does those things, I believe, because she loves me. But that isn't the basis of our relationship. We would not last. We wouldn't have lasted this long if it was based on just the, what are you going to do for me? What are you going to do for me? Right? Literally, I would never, I would never say, but, you know, Michelle, I've not taken the, have I not taken the trash out in your name? <laughs> you know? Have I not mowed the grass in your power? Like that. Right? I mean... Yet, the, yet people really believe that they've got a decent relationship with the Lord because they've fed the homeless, they've worked at the soup kitchen, they've helped in the school, they've done all the things, and some of the things that we do, the fall festivals, the thing, right? All the things that the world can do in their flesh, but we did it for you, Jesus, because they were your people, but they never had the relationship. We both do things for each other out of the pouring out of the marriage relationship. It's not the substitute for the relationship. It's just that simple. Now, you should really check yourself. When you drive into this place, when you come to this place, does your faith cause you to want to serve or do you serve to cover the fact that there is no faith? And I'm going to, I guess, I, I don't know, I... Sam's gone, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna throw it out there, right? I mean, I, I'm living on borrowed time at this point. No, um, don't show up and work. Don't show up and serve coffee, hand out donuts. Don't show up at security. Don't show up. I would I would personally rather fill in for you than have you think that that's your relationship with the Lord. Do not do it. Don't do it. I, I'm begging you. So many people 
when they come to that moment. I've dealt with people at an altar. I've dealt with people on the mission field. I've dealt with people in counseling who when I ask them about their relationship, they talk about the things they've done. Don't be that guy. Don't be that gal. Spend time with him in his word. Get to know him. So the next, the next aspect, the relationship and proclamation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is a crucial component for our relationship. I would argue it's not just a component, it's, it's, it's foundational, right? Jesus even says it in Matthew 16, he says, upon this rock will I build my church. And Jesus likens our relationship to, to the way you would build a foundation, Right? Now notice in Luke 6, in a completely different passage, completely different context, but he says, but he that heareth and doeth it and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth, against, against which the stream did beat and you know, it fell and it was ruined, right? All, all that stuff happened. Why? Because he didn't have a foundation. It literally wasn't built on the identification of Christ or Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. There was literally no foundation. So a few years back, we had our house built, and our marriage survived. I don't necessarily recommend it for everyone. I don't know that we'll ever do it again. <laughs> it is amazing how you can go weeks and weeks and weeks, and all of a sudden, you have to decide right now what the color of this is. You know, it's like, well, we couldn't find that out like three weeks ago and think about it. No, I need an answer right now. Do you want it black, tan, chrome? Like, it's like, wow, and now I've got to live with that. But, but we made it. We made it. Now, there's things we look back on our house and say we wish we would have done different, but we did it. We survived. So I think we can weather virtually any storm. Our relationship was built on a firm foundation before those rains came. But one of the most interesting components of the building process, and I went out not every day, but most days uh, to check it out and to watch, was, the, was literally the one guy by himself on a piece of equipment that has a really cool name and number, I'm sure, like moving earth and setting the parameters of the foundation. It was really interesting because he drove a stake in the ground and he's like, this is the corner. Are you good with that? If I move it six inches this way, this is the corner. Are you good? Like you, we had to be comfortable that that was where it started. And he's like, and I'm going to go down two feet, or whatever it was. I'm going to go down. Like, like this, is, this is important. This is a seminal moment in this building. And it wasn't flashy, and, and we didn't pick out a color of concrete when they were pouring our foundation, right? I mean, they didn't say, do you want the shiny concrete or the dull concrete? Like, the concrete, the foundation, was, it didn't have glamour to it. I, I'm not going to lie. The guy even smelled a little bit. I mean, he was a hard worker, but needed to take some showers. It was not a glamour, but everything about our house sits on that foundation. Everything. And it was, it was interesting to watch, to watch him pull back earth to make sure they got to the point where what he called raw earth, I don't know if that's like the official term, but that was the thing he threw at the guy who didn't know different, but to make sure it wouldn't settle, Right? to make sure the house would stay where it was built. Our foundation is absolutely fundamental. 
Sure, it's wonderful devotion. It's wonderful inspiration that he's our rock, but he has to be your rock, right? He has to be your rock. We also, we also see the important, uh, importance of the proclamation of, of Christ in, in another story, right? In John chapter 6, some people believe that this is actually the same encounter that happens in Matthew 16, Mark, uh, and Luke. I don't, I'm not in that camp. Maybe somebody can convince me otherwise, but uh, the parallels are impressive for sure. But Jesus says to the 12, will ye also go away? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. So it's, the ante's upped. That's why I think it's not just the same encounter. Now he's doubling down. Now he's willing to follow him in a way he had not uh, followed him before. It's about faith in who he is who he is, right? We believe and are sure. This follows on the identification of Christ. Once you can identify him, you can believe in him, right? Once you, once you see him for who he is, behold the Lamb of God. Once you see him for who he is, then you can actually believe on him. Notice in Acts, I think I put that, well, I didn't put it up, it's, it's, but it's in your Bible, Acts 8.37. And Philip, right, the Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, right, Philip is ministering, is witnessing, evangelizing Philip, uh, or the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8.37. And Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest, in the context of baptism. And the eunuch's response is very interesting. He answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the foundation upon which the church will be built. <clears throat> it took the Ethiopian eunuch to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, not just to know who he is, but to believe it. And this puts the component in there of understanding who he was, why he came to earth. At this point, obviously, the, the eunuch had understood that. Peter and, and the disciples were, were, were experiencing it. But the eunuch understood he came to earth, died, was buried, and resurrected the third day to overcome sin and death. He couldn't just know who he was. He had to believe so many, uh, you've, you've probably heard this saying, and I, I'm going to mess it up, that people miss heaven by 8, 10, 12 inches. I don't know. I guess it depends on where you measure. You know, the distance from their heart to their head. Some people know who Jesus is, but they don't believe who Jesus is. It's very, very different. It's very different. We have to know. And then the, the last aspect of this doctrinal application is this spiritual understanding. It's a spiritual conclusion. If you're back in Matthew ch chapter 16 and verse 17, um, it, it says, and Jesus, er, and Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church. So it's literally the understanding is a spiritual conclusion. It's not an intellectual conclusion. It's really important 
for us to understand the spiritual aspect of this because it has implications. If we understand that Jesus really is the Son of God, that has implications. It has implications on what we're going to do with that information. It has implications on how we're going to live and change. And I'm not one that, that, that promotes, if you will, during the evangelism process that they need to change. Like, I'm not a big repent guy, right? I'm a big, hey, you need to get saved from your sins. You can't cover your own sin, and the change will happen. Like, that's, that's generally, not always, but generally how I approach confrontational evangelism. This is not about your brain's ability to process information. This is about what the Father reveals. The it that Jesus saying was revealed from heaven was the proclamation that Peter made. Now, this is also very interesting. I'm going to throw this in for free. It won't cost you any extra. Jesus is making another play on words here. This is the only time Peter is referred to as Simon Barjona, the son of a dove, Barjona. Well, what comes down from heaven, right? He's actually reinforcing that it's not Peter as the rock. It's Peter's understanding of what comes down from heaven. It's another, if you will, play on words. I'm not sure that's the best vernacular for that, but it's a call out of that. Peter understood it because it came down from heaven. Doctrinally, Jesus says he will build his church on the proclamation of a man identifying and having faith in him as the Son of God. Not in works, but in spirit. I'm sure the foundation of this building is probably pretty impressive. If you've ever seen and maybe been in a, in a, in a, a very urban, like, like I, and I mean like a, like a New York City or a Chicago where they're building a skyscraper. I know they did, did some work down here just off Westport. And the foundations are pretty impressive. They can go pretty far down in, in, in depth and then they go even further down with, with equipment to build that. You have to have the right rock. Assuming that we have the right rock under our belts, the understanding of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, once we understand that, well, now we are going to move to this church that is being built and not being overcome by the gates of hell, right? Because methods matter. That's our second, second uh, step, the second aspect of our message today. The methods matter. Now, the New Testament is full of attacks against the church. We see great persecution. We see havoc to the church. There were certain uh, to vex certain of the church. Grievous wolves are coming in. In the church, there's going to be divisions among you. There's going to be false teachers among you. Like, literally, it kind of looks like a church, and it kind of looks like a fort or a castle. There's going to be attacks. There's no doubt about it. But Christ clearly states that the gates of hell won't prevail. It doesn't mean they'll be absent. It doesn't mean the attack won't come. It says they won't prevail against it. So what are some of the underlying principles that we should understand in an endeavor and to, to, to fight against these attacks? What do we do to build the right kind of church? And I don't mean stained glass. Or, or, or nice lobbies. I mean, what do we, how do we build the church to withstand it? Well, obviously the Lord's in the midst of it. We're not going to set him aside from this. But the first thing that we must consider is that we need to labor together. 
We need to labor together. According to 1 Corinthians chapter one or chapter uh, three, verses nine through eleven, for we are laborers together with God. He actually engages you in the process. He doesn't have to, but he chooses to use us. You're God's husbandry, you're God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. Paul says he laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. No, for no other foundation can man, or for other foundation can no man lay than is laid, which is Jesus Christ. We literally get the opportunity to work on a building project with God, and it doesn't look necessarily like Meyer. It doesn't look like here. It, 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 it kind of looks like the three-year-old construction site, right? Um, it, it, or the three-year-old on a construction site. So, like, so when we were building our house, Manning was five-ish. So if, man, if I brought Manning, and I, I, I know we did, but it, you know, construction sites are dangerous. So it's not like I just brought my kid along, hey, go play, right? Because they don't have like walls sometimes. You could walk off an edge, there's no door, there's doorways, but there's no doors, there's no steps, like, or whatever, right? So you gotta be careful. But it's literally like asking the three-year-old to help the construction guy build the, build the walls. Like that's, a, the three-year-old doesn't do anything except that the construction crew allows them to help. Here, hold this, take this hammer over to him. Now be careful, right? That's literally the parallel, the best parallel I could come up with in our process here. Like we get the opportunity to help, but only because the true one who builds, the Lord, gives us a, gives us a role. The master will do the, ma the vast majority of this work. The vast majority of the work but we get the opportunity and the privilege to be a part. Now also notice that Paul, and I mentioned it when I read it, Paul laid the foundation. Paul is pointing back to the ministry of reconciliation that he's had. He's literally pointing back to, I laid the foundation. No, he's not saying it like that. He's saying, I preached the gospel. And people got saved. That is the foundation that was laid. Now other others built upon that. It's literally called discipleship. I mean, we can put labels on it, other labels on it. I think discipleship's kind of a pretty good name to call it, but we could have other people building on someone's faith, literally strengthening them up. See, it's not the right praise band. It's not the right instruments. It's not the right marketing pitch, but sinners coming to repentance. I literally know of churches who get started, blow through their budget, their budget, with equipment. And then they kind of wonder why people didn't come. Well, it's because they weren't out proclaiming the transformed life. They weren't out proclaiming the offer of exchange of righteousness for sin. They weren't proclaiming the son of the living God. So we have to labor together. Another key component is growing together. Now grow is your, is your next blank there. In Ephesians chapter two, now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Your fellow citizens, you're of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, those who have believed before, 
if you will, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly, fitly framed together groweth into an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. This is beautiful. The, the picture is beautiful. Now, notice the foundation, again, is not just or specifically Christ, but the foundation is upon the apostles and prophets. It's their faith. It's their proclamation of who he is. But as the body grows, it has to be fitly joined together. So back on the story of building our house. After they've poured the concrete and they get the, some of the basement you know, iron in and they put a deck on there, they need to start standing up walls, right? And so what they did is they would lay the wood down on, on a flat surface, they would build the wall, and then they would stand it up. Now then they'd use some bracing. You, I know you've seen this as you've driven by a house that's being built or some sort of construction site, right, where they had to put angled bracing to hold that wall into place. When does the bracing come off? When there's other walls tied together, fitly joined, so that wall can withstand wind, that wall can withstand the pressures, because it, it shares the load through the structure of the house. Then the bracing can be removed. That is literally what we do in the life of a young believer, or, or a, new, a new believer, or someone that comes in that gets saved. We build a structure around them, until they can start to stand on their own. But they never really stand on their own. They stand within the fitly framed, joined body. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. The next thing we should do, we should feed together. We should feed together in Acts uh, 20, 28. This passage is more directly focused at pastors, right? But notice the responsibility is to feed the church of God. That clearly implies that the church should eat or feed together. Now, some of you do kind of remind me of a horse and a feed trough. I'm not going to lie. That was a joke. It's okay. You can laugh at your brother or sister in Christ. It's okay. Bear with me. I'm just trying to keep you awake. We have to feed together. There are obviously times like this where we are more as a congregation where one person is up here feeding us, but there's also times where we break down in fellowships. I don't know if I mentioned, but Whole Heart meets over in the annex. And the, okay, never mind. Sorry, I just had to do it. We also meet in fellowships, but we'll meet in Bible studies. We'll meet in discipleship. We feed together. Right? I'm sure you've heard it said that the one who teaches the lesson, whether it's up here or in discipleship, gets way more out of it than the one that's receiving. We feed together. And lastly, in this, in this kind of aspect of methods, we should know together. We should know together. And I know that that kind of is a little clunky, but I had to stick with the alliteration there. First Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you, and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. We should literally know them that are over us, but in the exact same way, in the exact same vein, we need to know those that labor amongst us. Shared experience is very, very important. I, I referenced it in, in the context of Michelle and I's marriage. We talk about the things that have occurred to us in our past and they help us in our relationship, the shared experience. 
I would say, you know, well, Alan Shelby says that ministry runs on the rails of relationship, and that, I, I totally believe that. But, I, you know, and the, the illustration breaks down, but I don't know if it's the fuel or the axle or the wheels or what, but it's shared experience. It's the context of share, or concept of shared experience. I was stuck in Bogota, Colombia, on the back end of a, of a mission trip. I know that James, uh, you know, this morning was, was giving me a hard time. He's probably up in, up in fellowship. But they, you know, when he came back, when they came back from El Salvador, they were delayed, right? That happens often on the back end of a trip. The Lord will protect the going and he will allow Satan to have some, some leeway on the backside. And some of the best lessons are learned after the mission is over on whether you're still committed to the mission on the return trip. I was stuck with about 15 people for 20 out of 28 hours in the Bogota, Colombia airport waiting to get home. I can still literally close my eyes and remember one of the team members, one of the sisters in Christ that went on this. She was young, younger than I. She was still an adult. She was, she was in her 20s, but younger than I. Remember, I'm 50. She was younger than me, crying because we weren't going to get home. Now, I don't say that in a derogatory tone. I just mean I can still remember that. And you know what? We prayed together. Uh, I, I won't say we really wept together in that concept, but, but we certainly prayed together. We were stressed as a team to get back. But we still joke about it. We still laugh about it. The shared experience is important. I will always remember that. I will always remember that trip. At some, po some point, I need to tell you about the return trip. It was, it was, it was quite, <laughs> quite an experience. But we walked the streets of Bogota together sharing the gospel. We stayed together in an airport. We wept over, we wept over sinners. We rejoiced over those who were saved. That shared experience is so valuable. Some of us, we, we've shared experience in working, you know, kind of owning the Meyer building and, and working on it and ministering around here, cleaning. Some of the best conversations, this is going to sound bad, some of the best conversations I've had in this church have occurred around cleaning. It's not necessarily around a prepared message or the Word of God per se, but it was just sharing from our heart. We need to know each other. I'm looking forward to that when we go and leading the trip to Toronto that was just mentioned earlier today, and, and I'm looking forward to the shared experiences. It'll be, it'll be special. I'll have those experiences with those people and won't have them with others. Now, you may be asking yourself, wait a second, you, you talked about the inspirational or devotional application, and you talked about the doctrinal application, but you didn't really touch on the historical application of this passage. Well, there was a reason. I wanted to save that for the end because of the practical implications it has for us. The next, the next slide is a pretty, it's an artist's depiction, and I don't know how well you can see it. Uh, pretty, pretty well, I guess. It's an artist's depiction of the Temple of Pan, or Pan. It's located in Panis, or Banis, Israel. Note uh, the building to the right is pushed up against the, the grotto or the entrance to a cave. There's a couple of areas of public interaction or show in the far right here and kind of up against uh, the, the mountain there. I'm going to read you something from, I, I think I have time to do this. So read an article 
from, a, from a tour guide of this very place. It says, before the outbreak, the COVID-19 pandemic in March, I used to stand, like to stand in front of the grotto of the Pan at Banis, at the foot of the towering Mount Hermon and welcome tourists to the lush Hermon stream nature reserve on the Israeli-controlled Golan Heights. Welcome to the gates of Hades, I would proclaim. Indeed, welcome to Banis, the Arabic pronunciation for pan. Arabic evidently has no P sound. Um, The cities of the, now now hear me out, the lusty, sexual, half-human, half-goat, flute-playing, Greco-Roman god of shepherds, flocks, mountainsides, hunting, and rustic music. He's, un, he's infamous for his unfettered sexuality. The pagan cult site, also variably called Paneus, Panas, Panam, Paneon, was considered to be an entrance to the underworld. The city, repeatedly rocked by earthquakes and gradually reduced to a village, has finally, was finally abandoned in the 1967 Six-Day War when its Muslim residents flee deeper into Syria. It's kind of right on the border. For Romans, this area was called Caesarea Philippi. In the pagan mindset, the limestone cave at Caesarea Philippi was literally a gate to the underworld where fertility gods would spend the winter. Here at the shrine in front of that, facing a series of marble temples and niches for pagan gods, some of those niches you can still see see carved in the wall. This is actually not that old of a picture within the last couple of years. Worshippers engaged in ritual prostitution and bestiality with goats in the belief that that would cause Pan to return. As for Jews, this is the only place in Israel where one may recite the blessing, referring to God, he who uprights idolatry in our land. In front of the cave, there's a beautiful kind of uh, waterway. And, And until last March, back in the article, when Israel shut its national parks and stopped welcoming overseas tourists because of the pandemic, Banis was a site where evangelical Christians and Orthodox Jews would come to revile the vestiges of paganism and admire the beauty of the cool rushing tributary cascading down to a 33-foot high waterfall before joining the Jordan River. It's the beginning, it's one of the, the heads of the Jordan River. Strikingly, Jesus chose to bring his disciples here to a place of pagan ritual impurity to deliver a sort of graduation speech, if you will. In this pagan setting, he encouraged them to build a church that would overcome the most debauched idolatry. Disciples must have been shocked. Caesarea Philippi was famous for its ritualistic sex, and Jews would have avoided it in any exposure to this debauched uh, fleshly spectacles put on there. It was a city of people eagerly knocking on the doors of hell. And thus, Jesus challenged his followers to storm those gates of hell. Standing near the gleaming pagan temples of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Or who do men say that I am? And ultimately, who do ye say that I am? And it was Simon Peter who was inspired to answer, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. In reply, Jesus continued and said, I say also unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
So upon this rock of proclamation, upon the contrast of idolatry and debauchery, where Jesus knows he could save every one of those folks that was involved, if they would just proclaim him as Christ. It was against this contrast that Jesus proclaimed to build his church. And then you know what he does in Matthew chapter 17, the next chapter, or Mark chapter 9, the next chapter after this account in Mark, or later in Luke chapter 9 after the statement? You know what he does? He walks three of his disciples up to the top of a mountain, Mount Hermon. It's the very same rock. It's literally where the Mount of Transfiguration is. The Transfiguration takes place, and you can see it. This Caesarea Philippi is the area of the sacred, this cave, and he literally mount, walks to the top of that very same rock and is transfigured before his, some of his disciples. Upon this rock of a transformed, proclaiming life, I will build my church. The fact that the Father is pleased in them, the fact that we should listen to him, the fact that we can have a changed life to go from debauchery and sin to proclaim him as Lord, on that rock, ladies and gentlemen, he will build his church. And that's the church that will last. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the picture, the beautiful picture, the fact that you chose to take your disciples to an area that they would no, not otherwise go to hear a message that they would otherwise not hear. Lord, you promise that you're going to build your church, not just on you, but on the changed life, the proclaimed, the saved life. I thank you for it. I know that you're, I, I just, I, I can't help but believe, Lord, that you're at work in the lives of some of the, the people under the sound of my voice, that, that you have used your Holy Spirit to, to convict of sin, of righteousness, of impending judgment. Lord, that you have the ability to take people who are so unworthy, so defiled, and literally save them from an eternity in hell. Through your death, through your burial, and your resurrection, it is just amazing. Thank you. I personally thank you for the day many years ago when I exchanged my sin for your righteousness. Thank you for someone sharing the gospel with me that, that, that I needed to understand that I was a sinner. And, and I'm sure under the sound of my voice, there are folks like that here today. And as we move into the altar call and we move into a time where people have an opportunity to, to, to make a decision to come forward, Lord, I pray that they would not be comfortable. I've heard testimonies of people feeling absolutely compelled to come forward, to lay something down, to, 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 to understand that they are a sinner and that they need a Savior. And Lord, that's my prayer for, for people today. Whether they need to leave a life of, 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 of flesh and serving in the flesh behind, whether they understand that they're a sinner and that they need a Savior, whatever the decision is, Lord, I pray that people act on it. Thank you for the depth of your word and the application that we can have to our lives. In Jesus' name.